You are listening to audio from Summit Community Church. You can join us Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on our YouTube channel at SCC Morganton. Good morning, SCC. Are you alive? Good morning again. That's better. Good to see you this morning. Good to be with you. So excited to be in worship with you today. We're beginning a brand new series called Wrecked, Wrecked by the Resurrection. Now, every Sunday for five Sundays, we're going to look at different people, five people from Scripture whose lives were totally wrecked by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we work our way through the series, through God's Word, we're going to understand general things about the resurrection in their lives. Some general things we must understand about the resurrection itself. You see this, one of the remarkable reasons of the rise of Christianity in the earliest days was because it offers hope. Did you catch that word? Christianity, the gospel, the resurrection offers hope to a hopeless world. Our translation of the word from the Greek into hope does not grasp the full concept of that word in Scripture because that word literally means profound certainty. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gave to the world then and now a profound certainty that He is alive, that He changes lives forever. This hope centers around that one explosive event, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what Christianity, what we as believers offer to a hopeless world, is profound certainty. Now, you know, we can focus, we have a tendency to focus most of our time and our attention on the crucifixion itself. And we give, the, we give very little attention to the resurrection. But, you know, how can we transition our faith into becoming a living hope, this profound certainty? How can we get there? You see, the first step is to actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it really happened. But it's more than just a symbol. The resurrection is a belief in the resurrection is something we put our lives in, put our trust in, put our hope in, our faith in. Belief in the resurrection was as difficult in Christ's days as it is for people today. We'll see that. However, you know, the fact of the resurrection does not automatically make us have a living hope within us. Just the fact of it doesn't do it. We must understand not only that it happened, but also, just as important, what it means. And so often, we will talk about the resurrection, and we drift into simply a very lengthy argument of why and how it happens. Talking about the history of the resurrection, the possibilities, and how it's scientifically proven. All these things, we spend our time and energy just proving that it happened and not enough time and energy in what it really means. The Apostle Paul grasped this for us in his writings in Philippians 3. He says, we are to know for certain that the, the resurrection did really happen. But he says, we must rest, as he says in Philippians 3, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. We must rest in the power of of the resurrection, to know it personally and experientially. That is where we rest in the resurrection, not just that it happened, but what did it do for us? What does it do for us on a daily basis? See, the resurrection of Christ 
is an invasion in your life and mine. The movement from the cross to resurrection remakes the lives of Christians from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to capture in a series what it means to live within the power of the resurrection, looking at changed lives changed by the resurrected Lord from the empty grave. That's what we're going to look at. Sam Alberry captured this in one of his writings. He said, we, we as Christians can believe in the resurrection. We rehearse that belief every Easter Sunday. Then he says that we sort of then, his quote, then effectively stick it back into a drawer for the rest of the year because we're at a loss to know what to do with it. The way I looked at it is like this. We sort of treat the resurrection as an episode we're watching on TV. And then an infomercial comes in and it's called the resurrection. We're watching a crucifixion on this episode. A brief commercial comes in about the resurrection. Back to the crucifixion for the main episode. What we must realize and comprehend in this series and in our lives as well is the crucifixion and the resurrection are the episode. It is the main event. It's not one or the other. We capture both at the same time. It's not just an interruption. It is both together. We must capture this in this series, one big cohesive truth. As we move through this series, together there's something that's going to ring true in every person's life we look at. And it's this. There's a big difference between seeing an empty grave and encountering a risen Savior. Big difference. Look on the screen with me. This is a big idea. Life change happens only when you encounter the risen Lord who made the tomb empty. Belief in the history of the resurrection can change you wholly, but not through intellectual means alone. It's only by meeting the risen Lord personally and uniting with Him in faith that we are radically changed for His glory. Most early witnesses came to faith in Christ, came in to him as the resurrected Lord who they saw, not because they couldn't find the corpse, because they found the Christ alive. And without a doubt for me personally, I believe the greatest evidence for the resurrection is not just the scientific things behind it, it is this, the changed lives of those who encounter Jesus Christ resurrected. Their testimony is the greatest evidence for me of the resurrection that happened. Today, one of those people whose lives was wrecked by the resurrection was a lady, a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. In John 20, we're told, as Linda has read for us so wonderfully, that Mary makes her way to the tomb early in the chapter on the first day of the week, very early. Matter of fact, it's early, but it's still dark outside before the sun has come up. She's anxious to get there because she loves her Savior. She loves Jesus. She arrives, and she does not find what she thought she would find. Mary goes to the tomb thinking, I'm going to come to the tomb and see what I saw a couple days ago, a tomb with the stonework over the entrance, closed up. I'm just going to grieve for a while at the, at the tomb. When she arrives, her worst nightmare has come true. The tomb is empty. Stone has been rolled away, which for her mind right now can only mean Christ's body has been stolen. Her heart is ripped out of her chest. She runs off in her grief, beginning to already take over more than it was before, to find the disciples to tell them what's taking place. And she finds Peter and John with this devastating news. In Luke 8, verse 2, it says, she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've put him. Crisis within the believers. Crisis 
among the believers and the disciples. So Peter and John go running to the tomb. Now, quick note for us, Peter and John go running. John outruns Peter because we strongly believe from history Peter is much older than John. For me, I turned 58 yesterday. If a 20-year-old runs me right now or run me, into, run me into the ground, I will not keep up. John was much younger. John beats Peter to the grave. But John sort of looks in. He sees what's going on. Peter, being Peter, gets to the tomb. He doesn't just look in. He goes in. Says, yep, the grave clothes are here. It's there, whatever. John goes in then and looks. Then they both leave. Mary is left at the tomb where she is now assuming Christ's body has been stolen, crisis, and she is crying profusely. And look at verse 11 again. It says, this, this crying she's doing, I'm, I'm convinced, was not just a casual tear, wasn't just a little bit of a sob. This was total weeping and wailing as mourners would do at a tomb. This is a crying that is called what I would call an ugly cry. You ever seen an ugly cry? This is an ugly cry right here. This is a person crying so hard, excretions coming out of every opening in their face. It's a mess. She is so moved in her emotions because, as she thinks, her Savior's body has been stolen. Her, her friend is gone. Look at verse 11 again. But as Mary stood outside the tomb crying, as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now she takes a look. She saw two angels sitting in white where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head, the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? She says, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. So here she is by herself. Peter and John have looked in. They've left. Mary chooses to stay behind. She's outside the tomb crying. She looks in. She's there because of her gratitude to Christ. Her deep emotion has overtaken her because of her deep love and gratitude for Jesus. This woman, who we have confused over the years of multiple people, is Mary Magdalene. Now, let me clarify who Mary is. Mary, we can sometimes confuse Mary as the woman who was about to be stoned in John chapter 8. We don't know this, and I firmly believe I don't think it was her. We have confused her with the woman who anointed Jesus' feet at the Pharisee's house. That woman is unnamed. We don't really know. People have said that Mary, because those stories have lent itself to a prostitute. We have no evidence of any of this with Mary. What we do know is this. Here's a fact. Jesus Christ changed Mary Magdalene's life for all of eternity. She encountered Jesus. He encountered her. He changed her life forever. Because of radical change, she's deeply moved in her emotions when she thinks of Christ's body being stolen. In Luke's gospel, we read what Mary was and what happened to her when she encountered Jesus. In Luke 8, let me clarify, in Luke 8 it says, with Jesus' ministry with the disciples, the twelve was also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. And it lists them. Mary called Magdalene. It says, parentheses, seven demons had come out of her. Not just one, but seven demons. She was demon-possessed in her life. Christ delivered her from this demonic possession. Mary was so overwhelmed by this deliverance from Christ in her life, that's what brought her to the tomb this day. You see, Jesus became the obsession of her life after he delivered her from her demon possession. She was obsessed with Jesus because he had radically changed her life 
from being possessed by evil spirits. And this obsession and gratitude moved her with great emotion. After witnessing Christ's crucifixion on the cross, placing him in a tomb, and now his body missing. In her grief there at the tomb, it says later that she did not recognize Jesus when he approached her. Now, I believe there's several reasons why, but one big reason, and hold on for a minute, but several reasons could explain this. The first reason is her ugly cry. Have you ever been a part of an ugly cry or seen an ugly cry? You know what I mean? When your eyes are so clouded with tears, you're so watered up, your vision is blurry, you cannot see what's in front of you. That could have been a reason. Most likely it was part of it. The other was, another reason is Christ's resurrected body. See, Christ's resurrected body was the same body he had before, yet now it's wholly transformed and perfected. So people would, who had known Jesus could not immediately identify him because there was a little bit of a change going on there. That's number two. I think those are parts. But I really believe that Mary did not recognize Jesus because of a mindset, a narrative taking place in her life right here in this story. And follow me for a second. Here's what I believe happened. In her mind, she had a narrative through which she was looking at everything at that moment at the, grave, at the graveside. When she first arrives at the tomb, she saw the stone removed. The tomb is empty. She finds the disciples. What was her message? They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where he is. Setting the tone for her mindset, the narrative in her heart. Peter and John validated. They leave. She looks in. She sees the angels. They ask, why are you crying? What did she say in verse 13? Again, second time, they, she said, why are you crying? She said, because they've taken my, away my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. Two times. Then when she turns around and sees Jesus, where she doesn't know it's him, verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She didn't know who it was, Jesus. Woman, why are you, why are you crying? Verse 15. Who is it you're seeking? This is setting the stage for the third time. And from this moment on, we're going to see the narrative that's blinding her, but also Christ getting through the narrative to show her the truth. The first word he speaks to her is what? Woman, why are you crying? That word is a word of respect. It's not demeaning. And I truly believe that word right here is setting the stage for Jesus moving into her life in a much deeper way in this encounter. She does not recognize him. Her narrative says his body's been stolen, and Jesus says, woman, I believe with all my heart that Christ was speaking to her as creator God at this moment. God created in Genesis man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he speaks that in a way that draws her back to God, Father God, Jehovah God, saying, woman, why are you crying? An endearment term, term of respect, but drawing her to see God to draw her attention to God even in her grief. The next question draws her deeper into who he is. That is him in front of her. Why are you crying? Then the third, that last question is very, very invasive in her life. Asking her to really ponder, to begin thinking deeper, who is it that you're seeking? Who is it? At this moment, it's the man named Jesus who changed her life. Jesus doesn't come to her like a sergeant seeking submission. He comes like a counselor seeking insight. It's as if Jesus looks at her and says, Mary, you love me, but your understanding of me is still far too small. 
he's driving her deeper into those three phrases to a deeper encounter of realizing who he is in front of her. Once again, look at her response to Jesus, thinking he's the gardener. Verse 15, supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. Do you see the pattern? Third time. But Christ has begun to make her think. She says, where have you taken him? Because of this narrative, she failed to recognize the angels, what they said, and even Jesus himself. In her confusion and her grief, all that served as a filter or a screen, making it impossible for her to see Jesus right in front of her. I think her mind was locked in this narrative of a stolen body. Have you ever been there with Jesus? Christ has been trying to get your attention for so long in your life, going, hello, I'm right here. Do you see me? And you're going, who are you? Christ tries to invade our lives, but our lives are consumed with a narrative that's different and pushes us away from who he really is. You ever been there? Your crisis for the moment gets in the way and you can't see Jesus. He says, I'm right here. Do you see me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to help you. Your life is upside down, needing salvation in your life. Jesus says, hello, I'm right here. Do you see me? You're locked up in your other pursuits. You don't see him. Mary is locked in this narrative. And Mary is so moved, even in her innocence here, not knowing who it is, she's so moved in her grief, she makes some statements that really are not, doesn't make sense. She says, if you'll tell me where you've taken him, I'll go get him. Now ponder that statement for a minute. This woman says she's going to take a full-grown man, a dead, limp body, and she's going to remove him. You get that picture? This is a job for several people, not just one person. And then on top of that going, Mary, what are you doing with a dead body? She didn't care. All she knew was her, her, the person, Jesus, her Savior, the one who changed her life was missing, and she was going to find him. And she would carry him away if she had to. Just tell me where he's at. I'll go get him. Humanly impossible, but she's like, that don't make sense. That don't matter to me. I'll do whatever I need to do to get him back to where he is. She had not grasped what we need to grasp for ourselves of living in the power of the resurrection. We must grasp this with everything in us. Grasp that concept. See, in this story, in her grief, Jesus begins to turn to shift the relationship. When he first sees her, he calls her woman. But right here, he says her name next. And that is enough to get her attention. She remembers the first time he called her name when he first set her free from demonic possession and her life was radically changed forever. She remembers that time. She'll never forget it. And Christ knows this. He moves in that conversation deeper and deeper to verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. I want you to grasp this. Her eyes might have felt her right here, but her ears never would. She could not see who it was, but she heard him clearly. Mary. Never once was a one-word utterance more charged with emotion than this one word. 
And I think you and I, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, must capture that same emotion when Jesus calls your name. That should move me in my heart. That should move me in everything in me. When he calls, Steve, Linda, Rob, Debbie, Gary, Mary, Marsha, Arlene, whoever. But he calls your name. That one word moves through all the confusion. Charles Spurgeon once said, Jesus can preach a perfect sermon in one word. You might pray one day we have a one-word sermon here, but we're not Jesus. <laughs> that one word was powerful. It was personal. When she heard her name, the tone in which it was spoken, she immediately responded back, quickly. It's like it clicked. Even in the mystery, she says, Rabbani, which we as translated teacher, but that's not the depth of the word. The actual word means my beloved rabbi, my dearest of all rabbis. You're the elite of the elite. You're the best. That's what the word means. Because why? Rabbi being a teacher in people's lives, she said, your teachings have literally changed my life from demonic possession to Savior obsession. And I am so blessed. That rocked her world. That changed her life. She had sinned so much, been forgiven so much, and now she loved so much. Notice the order that takes place here. She doesn't call him teacher, a rabbi, until after he calls her by name. Christ says Mary, then she says, Rabbani means teacher. In this simple exchange, we see a foundational truth of salvation. Christ comes calling for us, not us come calling to Him. Christ initiates, begins, and ends the salvation process. Unless He calls us by name, we will never come to Him. Christ calls us first. Then in the story, we see Mary's extreme emotion, how overwhelmed she is, that now knowing and clicking that this is Jesus. Now, she obviously went up and hugged Him, and man, she hugged Him tight. Because Jesus' next words in verse 17 are powerful. He says, Mary, don't cling to me, he told her, since I'm not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Capture this moment. He said her name. She responds. And in her emotion, she just leaps out and she grabs him with everything in her and she just gets him into a bear hug as tight as she can because she's so moved that she is seeing the one she came to find in a grave that's now in front of her. And it's not a dream. It's real. She grabs the real Jesus right there in front of her. And I don't know about you, but it's Jesus. Some people have debated this phrase, don't cling to me. He wouldn't say like, don't touch, don't touch me. He said, Mary, you need to let go because the story's not finished yet. You capture it. I don't know if you've been there before, but how many of you have been to a family reunion and you see that family member that you've not seen in forever <laughs> when you're a child, you're little, and they're grown adults, you haven't seen them in forever, and they're huggers, man, they're huggers. And boy, you walk up and you're, oh, here it comes. 
Here it comes. Before you can get your arms out to grab them, they grab you, and your arms are locked down your side, and you're going, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. You ever been there before? Usually for one of us guys, a great aunt or somebody in our family, it's long-lost aunt, we haven't seen it forever, and they hug the stuffings out of us. It's like, dude, you're going to hug everything out of me. And they finally let go, and you're like, whew, I can breathe now. You're like, you didn't even have a chance to get my arms out. You'd lock me in, you know? I picture this right here with Mary. Jesus is before her. And when she realizes it's him, he calls her name, and she says, teacher, as soon as it gets out of her mouth, she lunges in front of him and grabs him, and Christ is going, his arms are locked by his side, and she's holding on. And he says, Mary, and he probably is sort of strained with it, Mary, don't cling to me. You got to let go. But I want you to feel the emotion, this huge expression of respect and gratitude and love she has for Jesus, all stemming from the change he brought into her life. This man had changed her life. And what is Mary saying in that powerful embrace, this moment right here? Here's what she's saying. Jesus, I lost you once. I watched you die on the cross. I watched you take your last breath. I watched they took your lifeless body down from the cross. I watched you go into the tomb. I came with others to dress your body for burial. I left that grave with a stone rolled over the entrance, sealed up. I lost you once, and I don't want to lose you again. But that's as much as she wants. She wants to stay right there. As much as she wants to stay right there, Christ is going, Mary, I get it, I understand, but the story's not over. The story's not over. You got to let go. What does he say in verse 17? Don't cling to me since I've not yet ascended to the Father. The story does not end until Jesus ascends back to heaven. Until the time he does that, there's more to do. See, Christ is telling her in this response, Mary, I know why you're clinging to me so tightly. Because you're grieving over the loss of our relationship. Now you're thinking that you will grab me and never be apart from me again, but you don't understand. Let me go to ascend to the Father, to sit at His right hand, and send the Spirit. Then I will come to you in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and you will be able to have personal, up-close relationship with me and commune with me in a much deeper way. Let me go to the Father, and you will have a fellowship with me beyond anything you could ever imagine. He doesn't tell her, just let him go because he doesn't want to be hugged. But he says, the story is not finished yet. And I want to share a deeper relationship with you than I can even on this earth. And you've got to let me go for this to take place. Christ is at this moment commissioning her for a special mission he has just for her. Look at verse 8, 17 again. But go to my brothers, the end of the verse, and tell them that I am ascending to my Father, your Father to my God and your God. Mary, you got to go. Tell them what's going on. From that, I don't think Mary wastes time. She immediately goes to the disciples. She does what Christ has said, and even more because she cannot control her emotions right here. Can you imagine? Well, verse 18, what did you say? Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said to her. She didn't come out and say, Wait, Jesus said this. Do, 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 do. She says, guys, stop. I have seen the Lord. Christ didn't say, go tell him you've seen me. He says, go tell him what I'm getting ready to do. She, but she could not hold her emotions. Mary 
in a miraculous way, has now become the first witness and eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. This woman who was tormented by seven demons, was set free by Jesus, is now sent by Jesus as the first eyewitness and witness to his resurrection. What an honor. What a privilege. What a way to encounter Jesus here at the grave. Due to her desire to stay behind because of her redeemed relationship with Jesus, she's now in the pages of history known as the first eyewitness and witness to the resurrection of Christ. See, Mary's life had been a ruin when Christ brought her out of her demonic possession. She must have thought to herself, maybe even said with her lips, when Jesus confronted her, it's like, me? Jesus, I, I used to walk the streets crying out and probably half naked because it's demon possession in my life and them taking over, being out of my mind. Do you know my history? I can't be a child of God. Look at me. But Jesus had shown her that yes, she could and would be a child of God by grace alone. What grabbed me when I read that part of the story is that, you know what? Jesus said, I know your history. I know your history. Very well aware. But I'm going to write you a new story out of that history. You see a story is wrapped in history, history, story. He says, you know what? Forget the history. I'll use that to glorify myself, but I'm going to write a new story in your life. I want to ask you a question. Do you sit here today and say, you know, I got a history. I got a history, and a lot of it's not too good. And I look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you don't understand. He says, yes, I do understand. Have you ever once leaned in and allowed Jesus to rewrite your history into a story? A story of redemption, a story of grace, a story of mercy, a story of forgiveness, a story of being reclaimed by the Savior of the world. Has that happened for you? If it hasn't happened, then why not? Because I believe with all my heart, you've never experienced the risen Savior who made that grave empty. Have you? If you've not, I would say, why not? Second thing I would ask you is this. If you have allowed him to rewrite your story, is that story unfolding in a grace-filled, God-honoring way, or have you gotten off track? Are you still a witness to the power of the resurrection in your life? Or do other people look at you and go, I don't see this Jesus you're talking about because your life doesn't match what you're saying. I'm confused. Is your life leading them to more curiosity about Jesus, to more wanting to know more about him, to lean in him more in their lives, to know him as Savior and Lord? Or is it causing them to say, you know what? I don't believe what you're saying is true because what you're saying and what you do are two different things. If you have, are you a witness? Second thing is, have you ever turned it over to him? We're going to close with these two statements. Here's what. Look at this on the screen. To the degree you understand your need for grace, to that degree faith explodes in your life in the form of love. This defines Mary. This should define us. To the very degree that we understand our need for grace, 
that degree of faith explodes in our lives in the form of love. And that love moves us. That love motivates us to be realizing that life change truly happens when we encounter that risen Lord. Life change happens only when you encounter the risen Lord who made the tomb empty. Have you encountered him? Have you experienced him in your life? If not, he's right here in front of you. And he's trying to call your name. Answer that call today. Let your life be wrecked by the resurrection. Let's stand and begin to sing and worship. And as we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, have your way in our hearts today. Move and stir and work in us as only you can. Move us, Father, in a way that we encounter you in ways we never have before, that we experience you in ways we never have before. May we hear you calling our name. May we hear that one-word sermon that's personalized for all of us today. Father, I pray we turn our eyes to you and look full in your face and just be amazed at what we see. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Summit Community Church, please check out our website at summitchurch.me or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at SCC Morganton.